Our speaker today is Lindsay Hilson. Uh, you, you regulars uh, will remember she's been here before. She was such a success, we've begged her to come back. And in, the, in a gap between being somewhere else than the UK, she's come and we're very pleased she has. Um, Lindsay is the uh, international editor of Channel 4. She was for two years, three years, Beijing bureau chief. And she's just won an award. That's the One World, One World Journalist of the Year Award, um, which we beat off competition from two other women, unfairly beating my colleague, uh, Catherine Hiller from the Financial Times. Absolutely. TV people always, always win out. Um, <laughs> her work is uh, seriously some of the best foreign reporting you can see on television, and she's going to show you some of it here, speak for about half an hour, sure. and then we'll go on to about half three, four. So, Lindsay, thank you thank again. You, thank you very much, uh, John. I, um, as <laughs> last year, I always feel a little bit embarrassed in this situation because I look around and I've discovered, of course, that there are at least you know three people in the room who probably know more about the Arab Spring and covering the Middle East than I do. So, um, I'm, a, I'm the kind of journalist who goes in and out. I've been going to the Middle East on and off for about 15 years, but I've never actually been based in the region. So, um, which is, you know, which is always uh, slightly different. What I thought I would do is just talk a little bit about what it's been like, yeah, to cover the, uh, to cover all this, some of the the challenges and and difficulties, and uh, show a couple of. of pieces, um, which I haven't actually looked at since I did them, so I have no idea whether I'm proud of them or not. Um, and then we can we can discuss. So um, my journey was um, that I started, I didn't go to Tunisia because I was in China at the time, so then Tunisia happened. And then Egypt was happening, and my editors were completely obsessed with the idea that Nelson Mandela was dying. So they sent me to South Africa, and I'm screaming, I don't want to go to South Africa. I don't care if he's dying. I want to go to Cairo. So I landed in um, Johannesburg and turned on the phone, and there was a message saying, uh, please go to Cairo. <laughs> so, so I went to Cairo the long route and got there, and there was another colleague who had, was already there. And um, so, of course, I was incredibly miffed in the way that one is with these, I mean, you all know this stuff, the competition within organizations. So I thought, well, bugger that, I'm going to go to Alexandria. So I went to Alexandria, which was actually really interesting. Um, and it, because it was similar, you, because it was through being in Alexandria, I got a sense that this wasn't just a phenomenon of the capital city. It really had spread. And also, um, Alexandria was where Khaled Saeed was killed. Khaled Saeed being the, um, the young man who had put a video on his Facebook page uh, which talked about the police dealing in drugs and for that he was arrested and beaten to death and that was what gave rise to this Facebook page We are all Khaled Saeed. So that was interesting and I met his uncle and so on. Now in the discussion of how we have covered or, or I should just say, so then I went to Cairo later on I went to Benghazi and Ajdabia and I also went to Bahrain. So those are the places I, I've been to. Um, there's a lot of discussion about, you know, is this a Facebook revolution, is it not, and so on, and, and you know, people saying, uh, coming down one side or the other, either it is or it isn't. Um, 
and actually it is and much more because it is definitely true that traditional protests has been very much part of this and one of the things which I found very interesting is that the April the 6th movement in Egypt started in defense of workers rights and a, a strike which they were supporting so but they spread their message through Facebook and Twitter and so on so it became all you know deeply Marshall McLuhan and the medium is the message but it was a traditional form of protest initially and um, one of the things which I found really interesting and very moving as well, I didn't spend a lot of time in Tahrir Square when I came back from Alexandria, and um, I had a long conversation with a, an older woman who was there with her daughter who was in her 20s, and she said, she said, I feel ashamed that my generation didn't do this. She said, we used to, I used to tell my daughter off for being on Facebook and so on. So I said, what the hell are you doing wasting your time? She said, I never thought to ask what she was writing about and talking about on Facebook. And uh, I thought that was a really interesting, interesting comment. Um, it was definitely the revolution where um, Twitter came into its own for journalists as a tip-off service, and it was incredible. It was so useful that you would, you know, you would read a tweet saying, "We're now going to march on the presidential palace, leaving this part of the square at such and such a time." And so. We talk a lot now about verifying things, but when you're there on the ground, that's incredibly useful. You just go there and either they do it or they don't. It's really, it was really, really useful. Um, and then I had my, my own uh, Twitter moment, which I will tell you and you can decide whether I did the right thing or not, which was on the Thursday, this was day 17, um, no, on, the, on the Wednesday, I went to see Dr. Badrawi, who was the head of Mubarak's political party. And he didn't turn up to the interview. And I waited an hour or two hours or something, got pissed off, went, was missing deadline, went back to the hotel. We set the interview up again the next day, went back, hour goes by, he's not there. The Wall Street Journal are also there, and they give up. And then my Egyptian producer got very pissed off and rang him on his mobile and said, how can you be so rude to these foreign journalists? This is appalling, you're letting Egypt down. <laughs> and so he said, all right, all right, tell us to hang on, tell us to hang on, I'll come back. So he came back and we sat down and he said, the reason I couldn't see you yesterday was because I met Mubarak three times. I said, okay, that's a good excuse. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, what did he say? He said, well, I was getting him, I was trying to persuade him to, to step down because the moment has come. And I mean, all this is on camera, right? So I get this whole thing, he said, today, I said, have you seen him today? He said, no, but I've spoken to him on the telephone and he's going to step down tonight. And so I thought, oh my gosh, I've got the scoop of the century. Um, so we went through, and it was all on camera. It wasn't oh, off the record, I'm telling you this. It was absolutely on camera. Here he was, the head of Mubarak's party, telling me he was going to step down tonight. So then we have this modern dilemma, which is, so that was probably three o'clock in the afternoon London time, maybe four o'clock, and of course we're not on till seven. Channel 4 News is on at seven. Um, and today you can't hold on to something like that. Um, because although he said he wasn't going to give any more interviews, I knew that someone, I mean this man was talking, someone was going to call him up and get it out of him. So there was no way I was going to let this be anybody else's story. So I put it out on Twitter, Dr. Badrawi says blah blah blah. And I have on reliable authority, John Simpson, that at that point, 15 people got up in BBC television centre and went to Heathrow 
and flew to, to Cairo. So that's fine. <laughs> and so then, you know, I get, we get it out on the website within the next, um, you know, within the next couple of hours, and then we have our, you know, big thing on the program, and then Mubarak's speech comes, and I'm in the square, and the bastard doesn't resign. <laughs> I think, oh God, <laughs> this is just awful. And then I'm sort of going to, oh, what the hell is going on? And I did source everything and all the rest of it. Anyway, so the next day, so, and I didn't. President Obama had the same moment. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, the rest of Egypt. <laughs> the rest of Egypt, indeed. And, so, and also, I can't really hear what he says in his speech because I'm in the square and. The translator's disappeared, and the man next to me is supposed to be translating, but he is so busy throwing shoes at the screen, <laughs> that I can't, and he can't be bothered to translate, but he just says, he's an arsehole, he's an arsehole, he's an arsehole. He's an arsehole. I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> anyway, so luckily we were off air by then, so I didn't have to know. Anyway, so the next day, I, you know, desperately trying to get hold of Dr. Petrawi, of course his phone's always engaged, surprise, surprise. Um, and then by the middle of the afternoon, I get him, and he says, look, he was going to step down, he really, really was. It was true. Um, but what happened to him was what happened was that Gamal, his son, um, intervened at the last minute and said, "Don't do it, Dad," and um, changed the speech. And so that is why the speech is apparently very peculiar. I have to say, I've not seen a full translation of this thing because it was so chaotic at that point. But it, it, it so it's like it sounds as if he's about to resign, and then he doesn't. That is apparently the reason. So I, I was right, sort of. <laughs> I mean, I was just very, very timely, like a day early. But, I but it was a very interesting example of how, how we do use Twitter. I suppose in a sense, it's just like being a news agency journalist, but we all have to be a news agency journalist now. You cannot hang, hang on to anything. I, let's now have a quick look at this is so when I, I got that story then John Snow came John Snow had been in London our anchorman and he came out to to present and um, when Mubarak finally stepped down it was about an I'd say an hour and a half before we were on air so I had sort of already done a story which then had to be you know redone so it was one of those kind of very very exciting and um, raggedy moments and I think that one of the issues in television journalism on a story like this is that one has to, of course you have to be impartial and stand back, but it is also your job to convey the moment and to convey the emotion and the excitement. And if you stand there like um, a lump, surrounded by people who are screaming and shouting and jumping up and down and intoning, you know, today His Excellency President Mubarak. I mean, it's just not going to work. So you have to try and encapsulate the moment as well as be objective. And I have no idea if I managed to do that or not. So let's have a look. Um, and I make no um, apologies for Jon Snow's pronunciations because he is sure to have got something wrong. Now, is this going to work? <laughs> I need to close this. Okay. 
And then I hear this cinnamon. The story has been played out every night in Tahir Square. But tonight is an Egyptian moment right across this country. Streets in every city are clogged with celebration. Hosni Mubarak finally bowed to the inevitable this afternoon and stepped down. A military council has been appointed to run the country in his place, headed by the defense minister, Mohammed Tantawi. In effect, this is an army takeover. The cabinet and both houses of parliament have been suspended. But for the crowds out there in Tahir Square, this is their moment of people's revolution, as our international editor, Lindsay Hilson, now reports. Six o'clock in Cairo, and the news cascaded through the crowd. Across Egypt, millions were on the streets, erupting in excitement. Keep gone, after 30 years, gone. Cars honked their horns. It was a moment like no other in their lives. In Tahrir Square, the protesters were beside themselves. They'd done it. They'd won. They'd brought down President Mubarak. This is the moment everyone here has been waiting for. They thought it was going to come last night. It didn't. They had to wait for it. <laughs> really, can a military takeover have been greeted with such enthusiasm as it is on the streets of Cairo tonight? But in the end, it all came down to one man, Mubarak. And these people say, it's gone. <laughs> In the name of God, the merciful, the compassionate, my dear fellow citizen, in the exceptional circumstances that have been going on in the country, the President Hosni Mubarak decided to step down and to hand over the administration of the country to the High Council of Military Forces. protesters had gathered outside the presidential palace, not knowing if Mr. Mubarak was still there. Rumours swirled that he'd gone to his home in Sharm el-Sheikh. The military stood guard, no longer loyal, but determined that he should leave with dignity. Officers told the crowd they could go no further. The army has always been the most powerful political force in Egypt. Now it's officially in charge. Demonstrators refused to be contained to Tahrir Square. They were spreading their revolution all over the city. Several thousand went to the TV station, Mubarak's mouthpiece, a symbol of the old regime. These 
young revolutionaries love the army. The soldiers haven't turned against the protesters. But the question now is, will the military really usher in democracy? But that's a question for tomorrow. Tonight, it's simply jubilation. In Tahrir Square, they were already clearing away the barricades. This was the Nile Revolution, and they won. The young people of Egypt did what their elders were too scared to do, challenge the old regime. These were 18 days that shook the Middle East, and nothing will be quite the same again. Lindsay Hilson, Channel 4 News, Cairo. Now before we join Lindsay Hilson live, just look in the square here. It's now become almost a circus. There are kind of fire eaters in the middle. There are people dancing around what appear almost to be maypoles. There are flags everywhere, the Egyptian flag forever. Quite extraordinary scenes of jubilation and enjoyment. Lindsay, let's just pick up on what the scene is here because we're just around the corner from uh, Tahrir Square. This is the Nile. Bridge over the Nile, utterly jammed with traffic. People on every balustrade. And right down here, people well, showing off in front of our Arabia TV station, which is next door to us, going out across the Middle East. Now, here we have a military takeover of a government that was already a military government, effectively. I mean, it's not a coup, it's a takeover, apparently. That's right, and the people are incredibly excited because in the end, it just came down to one man, President Mubarak, and people here love the army. And in the last statement, which has just been made in the past hour by the military spokesman, he saluted, he gave a military salute to the of the revolution. By that he meant the people, probably around 300 or more, who have been killed primarily by the security services in the last 18 days of revolution. Now that's an incredible thing for these people. That's an extraordinary amount of respect for the military to show the people. And the final thing they said, the military said, we have no alternative but the legitimacy of the people. Well, that's of course very true indeed, because they've got to get these people back indoors and back to work. And, and one wonders how they're going to do it. They will have to do it in tandem with people from the square who are presumably going to be their advisors. Well, in some ways they are. And I was talking to, to people yesterday saying that some of these young Twitterers, blog people, Facebook people will be involved in some kind of new government. But we're a long way from that. It's a military government for the moment. Lindsay Hilson, we'll talk to her again later in the programme. But uh... at the end of all that, John said something like, it's a great day to be an Egyptian. I'm not an Egyptian, but it's still a great day. <laughs> um, anyway, it's quite interesting looking at that because one, the one thing I and I think it did come out um, in that I was worried that we got so carried away because it was so exciting mm -hmm. that we didn't make it clear that it wasn't a real revolution, that it felt like a revolution, but it actually was mistaken. But I think we did make that clear from, from that, which uh, which is good because. Because it is really hard not to get swamped and carried away, and it, it's right to get carried away. I mean, my God, I mean, one becomes a journalist to live through that kind of thing because it's so exciting. Well, I did anyway. Um, so, but it's, it's, it's to, to try and get that, that balance, I think, was, was tricky, and that's what we were trying to do throughout. Um, and then one of the things which James mentioned to me before him was about whether TV images create an, a narrative. And they certainly do. Um, and those pictures which you would have all have seen on you know, all the different television stations, they, they give that um, sense of 
other people's takeover and then what happens later is, is much more complex and we're in that now you know, with people still going to the square and not not you know content with the, with what's happened um, I still don't feel that the narrative that our TV pictures created was misleading I still think it's it's true. I think that the people did overthrow the regime, and that, and you, I do think that, in that way, what you saw was what was correct, was what you got. Um, maybe I'll feel differently about that in five years' time. I don't know, but I, I think that at the moment. Um, one of the problems, obviously, is that we didn't stick with it on Egypt, and that was because there's too much else going on. So you know, within a few days, I was off to Libya. And um, that's one of the problems we have at Channel 4 News, which is that we're small. And whereas you know, the BBC has you know, dozens of correspondents all over the world, we have two bureaus, Washington and Bangkok, and three foreign correspondents based here, and that's it. And then we have some other reporters who can also do foreign. But we can't have people everywhere. So I'm aware of all these things sort of dropping off the edge of them. But I would love to be you know, in Egypt and looking in more depth at what's happening now and, and how it happened and, and why it happened. There's been some great stuff written mainly in newspapers you know, analysing how all this happened and we, we just can't, uh, can't do that. Um, Libya was very different, um, obviously because it, it went into being a, a war pretty quickly. It was another one where it was very hard not to get carried away because I went to Benghazi and I have to say that I found uh, Libyan people extremely engaging and what, one of the things which I had not had not really been prepared for was the, the sense of humour they had and I thought it was very important to try and put that over in the reporting um, and also this sense of a place where the politics were completely atrophied but society had evolved like so many other societies in the world. And the example for that being that Colonel Gaddafi, of course, wanted everybody to spend their whole lives reading his wretched green book, <laughs> which, of course, they had these terribly ugly green concrete statues in every town, which the first thing people did was knock those down. And I have a little bit of green book statue from Tobruk, which I collected as a souvenir, of course. Um, but actually, they haven't been reading the Green Book. They've been watching quiz shows and reality TV, like everybody else in the Middle East and across the world. And the reason I know that is because I asked somebody to translate some graffiti for me, and it, they said, oh, that says, Gaddafi, you are the weakest link. Which goes to show this is a universal language. And somebody else came up to you with a piece of paper, which was an incredibly elaborate joke. And I thought, well, what does it say? And they say, oh, well, Gaddafi's on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And he doesn't know the answer to the question. So they say he can phone a friend. So he phones the devil. But even the devil won't talk to Gaddafi now. <laughs> so, you know, that was um, that, that was something which was very appealing. And it was very and it was extraordinary because and there were graffiti everywhere because it was the first time people had been able to say what they really thought. So again on this impartiality thing. You know, I don't have it in me to say, on the one hand, it's a good idea that people will say what they think, and on the other hand, it's a bad idea. Because I don't think it is. So you just can't. So, and so, but what I could say um, to provide some kind of um, realism was that the rebels were rubbish. I mean, they were really poor as soldiers. And so however much one felt sympathetic 
to them. And I think that that is not unreasonable to feel sympathetic in this situation. One had to be totally um, hard about the fact that they were untrained, badly armed, um, poorly armed, and they were a complete shower. The joy of it was that it was one of the first wars in a long time where we've been able to get up to the front line because these days things are very controlled. And in Libya, there was nothing, there was nobody to stop us doing anything. And yes, we were a danger to ourselves. Um, and of course, some of my colleagues have been killed. And several of my colleagues were captured and had extremely unpleasant experiences at the hands of the Libyan forces. Um, but it was, you know, that was a fairly amazing um, thing, because I can't remember the last time we had a war like that, where you could just, every day you get up and say, all right, well, let's go to the front line. I have to say, it was, I used to, I felt every day I went, I didn't go to the front line, I felt like a coward. And every day I did go, I felt like a fool. And I found that quite complicated. Because basically you'd go up with the rebels, and then you'd interview people, and then shells would come in, and then you'd run away. And you'd think, oh, God, this is nuts. Um, so let me show you one piece from that period. Um, which um, I'm, I'm just whizzing on a bit because the person who did this DVD very kindly for me seems to have um, put a lot of us rabbiting. Did by more air strikes today as Gaddafi's forces launch a heavy attack on the eastern oil port of Ras To the west, there are reports of fresh fighting around Zahir as government troops battle to capture that town from insurgents. Our international editor, Lindsay Hilson, managed to get into Raslanouf earlier today to meet the rebels holding the desert front line. She's now back in the nearby town of Ajabaya. From Ajabaya. Where she said this. I told him every day. And he spelled it wrong. Was it one of the fighter jets? The bomb falls a few hundred meters away in the desert. Colonel Gaddafi's troops are over the horizon. They've been fighting further west in the town of Binjawad, and the rebels have been pushed back. People, they were hiding on the houses. People were walking, they were fighting for Gaddafi. They were themselves hiding in the, in the houses. In the houses. In Binjawad. In Binjawad. When we just enter, they start to shoot us. To shoot us from everywhere. The rebels say that Colonel Gaddafi's forces are bombing here at Raslan <coughs> every few hours. That's why they're always ready with their anti-aircraft guns. Some of them say they want to push up the road now, get to his hometown of Sirte as quickly as they can. But others say no, better to consolidate and wait until they have better weapons and more forces. Today we saw just how inexperienced many of the fighters are. This 21-year-old told me it was the first time he'd ever held a weapon. This is weapon, something missing. Ah, you've got something missing from your weapon. Then we go. Some are highly educated and idealistic. Why have you come here to fight? Uh, I'm not better than my brothers who are dying here or trying to serve my country. And believe me, it's not what a country can do for you, but what can you do for your country? <laughs> to be or not to be, that's a question. <laughs> But the casualties are mounting up. Young men who want to fight but don't know how, armed with Kalashnikovs and rocket-propelled grenades against tanks and fighter bombers. The hospital at Rasla Luth is struggling to cope. The doctors working round the clock. 
today families who work in the oil installation were leaving. Are you worried about uh, Gaddafi's forces coming? Yes, yes, very bad. All too much. Wow. Okay. The rebels still hold Ras Lanouf, but for how long? Now to the Libyan crisis in Benghazi, where the uprisings right. began. Rebel leaders said to. I don't know what that next bit is. Anyway, I think that was a fairly. Uh, actually, it's quite a good reflection of what it was like most of the time. But they were terribly appealing and totally useless. Um, and of course, they have been been um, been pushed back. I felt um, covering Libya. I felt guilty in the sense that I felt that we had not. We had always we had treated kind of Gaddafi like a joke for so long because of the way he looks, because of the sunglasses and the whole, you know, weird kind of rock star type appearance and so on. And spending time there, I understood he was as vicious and as cruel as Saddam Hussein, and we had failed to cover that. And I didn't really understand why this revolution had happened until I met the families of um, victims of a massacre called the Abu Salim massacre. The last piece I'm going to show is a short one. It's about Abu Salim. Abu Salim is a prison in Tripoli. And in the 80s and 90s, um, the Gaddafi regime was, was fighting any kind of political opponents and arresting political opponents, many of whom were Islamists, some of whom weren't. And um, they, and these prisoners uh, protested about their poor conditions in the prison. And um, after a while, he, put, he gave charge of this prison to Abdul Sanusi, who's his brother-in-law, who's one of the people who's now indicted by the, or the seeking indictments for him for the International Criminal Court. And um, 1,200 men were gunned down in the prison courtyard. 1,200 men, that's a lot of people. There's a lot of families affected. And the revolution in Benghazi, which I shouldn't call a revolution because Kankadak is still in power, the uprising in Benghazi was started by the families of the Abu Salim victims. And this is something which I think has not come across enough in the reporting. And I had a fight with my editor on the day I did this story because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't bang bang, frontline stuff. It was so he said, "Oh, we were put it at the bottom of the program." Well, the beginning, I didn't want to put in the program at all, and then I threw a hissy fit and screamed and shouted down the telephone and so on and so forth. Got the story back into the program, but it still wasn't very high up in the program. I mean, you're all journalists; you understand why this matters. You know, you're not on the front page or anything. But, um, but I do, apart from the sort of, you know, it's not just the sort of ego trip thing of where one is in the program, I really feel that if we don't understand about Abu Salim, then we don't understand anything about Libya. So um, it's my little obsession at the moment. So I'm just going to quickly play you that one and then we can talk. It just, I don't know what John's rabbiting on about there. Let's try this one. Over their deaths. Our international. Okay. Martyrs of the revolution, killed not last week, but 14 years ago. Yet their story sparked this uprising. 
they died in the most notorious massacre of Colonel Gaddafi's rule. 1,200 men gunned down at a prison called Abu Salim. When Colonel Gaddafi gave up his weapons of mass destruction and compensated the victims of Lockerbie, the Americans and British brought him in from the cold. But people here in Benghazi and in other parts of Libya never forgot the massacre at Abu Salim and other atrocities. And that's still what angers and grieves them most. Brothers, sons, fathers, husbands, for years their families believed that they were still alive, held without trial on suspicion of opposing the government. I used to go to Tripoli with his wife and children, his son was seven and his daughter five. We took the basic things he needed and gave them to the guards. They told us he was there, but we weren't allowed to see him. The government said we could come every second month, and we used to spend a day or two at the gate. We did this for 14 years before we were told that he was dead. Nothing left but a letter he once wrote. Bit by bit, the story came out. As some who were released told the families of the day in June 1996, when 1,200 prisoners demanding better conditions were assembled in the courtyard and loaded onto buses, and machine-gunned. Some sick prisoners were put in a bus and driven around. Instead of being taken for treatment, they were shot in the bus. Just imagine, they thought they would be treated, but they were blindfolded, their hands tied and shot. My brother amongst them. The protests which sparked the uprising in Libya two weeks ago started here in Benghazi when the Abu Salim family's lawyer was arrested. Released after two days, he's become a popular hero and leader. But as long as Colonel Gaddafi remains in power in Tripoli, he says he fears for his life. We, the Abu Salim families, ignited the revolution. The Libyan people were ready to rise up because of the injustice they experienced in their lives, but they needed a cause. So calling for the release of people, including me, who have been arrested, became the justification for their protest. Ordinary men, women and children, and old people joined the Abu Salim families. Outside the Benghazi courthouse, where the new anti-Gaddafi administration is based, people are still looking for answers. This is your brother? The Libyan government did eventually admit there had been killings at the prison. But every day, people post new pictures of the dead and the disappeared. One of the hopes of this protest is that the prisons will be opened, the archives will be opened, and people will finally find out what happened during the 42 years of Gaddafi's rule, because many of these questions remain unanswered and the bodies of the people killed in Abu Salim are still missing. The families told me Colonel Gaddafi should face the same fate. Kill him? Yes. Is there no other way for justice? Yeah. Lindsay Hilson, Channel 4 News, Benghazi. So I felt that we had, I felt that we had failed to tell that story in the last um, how many years it is since 1996. And um, 
I have to say that that I had that story. I had asked our fixer. Um, I'd like to meet a couple of the Abyssinian families, and we were late because we were running out of time. He said, "Well, you know, they're all waiting. We have to get there." So we got there, and then all of those people had turned up, each one with this picture of the person they had lost. And I think it's that man who told me it was on there that um, that they were. He went every two months for 14 years taking things to his brother-in-law before he found out that he was dead. There's something about that. There's a, there's a level of cruelty about that which I, I still find really hard to take. Um, and so in a strange way, with all the sort of running around in excitement and jumping up and down of these um, Arab Spring revolutions, that, that's the piece that actually I care about the most. <laughs> um, even though it was halfway down the programme and I had to fight to get on. So nobody in the world knew. They did know. Some people knew. Human Rights Watch had reported it. They didn't know for a long time. It didn't really come out until 2003, I think, was when it. So there were many years when nobody knew. But those people had never spoken to a journalist before. They had spoken to some human rights person from Spain, and they had had some contact through Skype with some people. And they had been starting to protest in Benghazi. In the last four years, they had come out every Saturday morning to protest in Benghazi. So that they had been able to express themselves, but the, I mean, there's still, we still don't know. You know, there's still um, a lot to find out about what happened in Abu Salim and how it happened and, and you know, who was who was there and who was involved. And um, I think that um, I think that if you don't understand about Abu Salim, then you can't really understand why people in Libya are so determined that they're not going to do a deal with Colonel Gaddafi and they really have to, they really want to win. And why have they stepped up the protests now? Well, I mean, they stepped up the protests, I mean, that was obviously because of Egypt and Tunisia, right. which has obviously, you know, moved things along, because it was, uh, you know, and that, um, I mean, you know, Saturday morning the last four years, those people would come out and everybody would say, oh, that's the Abu Salim people. But then, because this other thing was starting across the region, what happened was that on the 15th of February, they arrested Fatih Turbul, who was on that piece, who was their lawyer. And so then, everybody came out to protest about him being arrested. They said, no, no, you can't do that. And then, the authorities sort of panicked and released him, and then on the 17th, everybody came out. So the Abu Salim thing was like a trigger for what happened, for what happened in Libya. So um, I think that's sort of all I've got to say, really. Um, what have I got? What did I oh yes, Syria. Obviously, I mean a lot of you know. I mean that the real issue I think for the moment is places where we can't get to and um, not just simply not allowing journalists in is an extremely effective technique um, it, it works and Syria um, you know Tibet Sri Lanka North Korea not letting journalists in um, is what governments resort to and although we're still able to cover certainly Syria through um, all the pictures that come out on, on new media and, and so on, and we do that all the time. Um, I am increasingly anxious about the issue of verifying those pictures 
um, the BBC now has a whole unit of people who do verification, looking at weather and you know people from the Middle East who can recognise places and all this kind of thing. We don't have those kind of resources, Channel Four News. You know, we can't we can't do that. So we do verify as much as we can, um, but it's difficult. And you now have um, Avars, the organization Avars, which is putting out pictures every day from Syria and other places. They're not journalists, they're activists. Um, it's in their interest to indicate that an uprising is continuing when maybe it's been suppressed. And so I feel more than ever that we need to be there. And the, although those kinds of <coughs> Um, reports are useful and definitely have to be integrated into what we do and definitely are part of the modern panoply of journalistic tools. Nothing, nothing is the same as being an eyewitness on the ground. Good place to stand. Yeah.